Hey, today is May 21st, 2018, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast, episode 91! 91! That's a lot of episodes! Today, we're breaking down robot tactile expressions, Xbox's new accessible controller, and details on the boring plan, the Yanny Laurel illusion. Wow, there's a lot going on. And did we mention Google removed its Don't Be Evil clause? Human Factors Cast starts right now. To Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today, as always, by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Hey, what's going on, everybody? How are you this week? Hey, Blake. I'm good, man. It's This is one of those rare occasions where you were not in the office on a Monday, so I couldn't talk to you at all. So it's like I haven't talked to you since Thursday of last week. It's been a while, man. How are you? <laughs> How are you doing? What's going on? I'm good. I'm just kind of tired. I went and did a uh, run over the weekend with some of Elise's family, a little, little small four-mile run across the Bay Bridge. Uh, but other than that, I'm doing fine. Had a nice weekend enjoying some company and now I'm ready to do a little Human Factors cast, man. How about you? How was your weekend? I haven't talked to you in a while, it feels like. I know. Well, yeah, my weekend was good. I uh, was less productive than I was hoping to be, but I was more productive than I was hoping to be in another way. So I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I was talking about Plex a couple weeks ago, and I kind of was playing around with the idea of potentially making my own uh, server for you know, cloud-based server for uh, Star Wars media and initially I thought okay well there's a couple TV shows and eventually there's going to be a live action TV show and you have the movies and you have a couple cartoons and a couple YouTube shorts right and they're all canon and I kind of got on a kick of I mean we've talked about this before on the show Blake where where if you open these comic book apps now there's this guided view right where you basically click or tap on the right side of the screen and it automatically kind of zooms into the next piece of the comic. So you're, you're very focused in on what's going on now and not the whole comic book, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I've found a new way <laughs> to uh, enjoy my comics. So some awesome people on YouTube, and I won't, I won't like plug them here, just go look up some search terms after listening to this if you're interested um but as you know i'm a star wars guy and star wars is my thing but i've fallen really far behind on the comics and i think part of it is just like the thought of sitting on my phone and tapping you know right on the screen and reading a bunch is is kind of tedious right and i so these wonderful people um who again i won't credit have gone in on some of the star wars uh, some of the Star Wars comics, they have actually gone in and have done a video of the guided view, right? So that's nice. That's 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 very nice because now instead of tapping right, uh, and for the most part, you know, the, uh, the transitions are pretty smooth and it's not too quick to where I can't read it, but also they've gone one step further. They've added music. And that's pretty standard for a lot of the ones that I saw. But some of them go even further. I'm going to play a little excerpt here from one of the Mace Windu comics. And Mace Windu, if you're unfamiliar, is played by Samuel L. Jackson. They've gone in and dubbed some of the, this content so you can actually listen to the comics with sound effects and everything. So here, here's, a little, here's a little clip from some of the stuff I was listening to this weekend. Uh, if it wants to load here. Uh, yeah. We can muster now. War is upon us we knew this day would come violence rolls as a never-ending tide and it is rising once again so this is somebody on youtube who has actually done this right and that's not bad of a dub and pretty good impressions you were listening to mace windu and kiati mundi in the jedi temple uh this is getting really nerdy here i'm sorry guys. <laughs> but i mean my point here is that somebody has gone in and and dubbed these things so that way it's almost like watching a movie and uh, it's in comic book form. I just, it's, it was, it was taking that guided view to the next level for me. And I wanted to share it with other people and they've done it with other things, right? I mean, we're going to talk about infinity war in this week's uh, infinite episode, go figure. But um, I just thought it was a cool way to experience comics. 
Yeah, I mean, that would be kind of fun if they did that more often. Like, if that wasn't just somebody going and kind of putting the extra time in from, like, just a, a fan perspective, right? Because that sounds like it might even be more in, a more enjoyable experience than having to, like, you know, sit there on your phone and tap right the entire time. And it might even be kind of nicer having that extra, either, like, extra auditory experience or if it's like you just did with the dubbing version. Uh, because, it, uh, like, if you're doing it on your phone, I mean, if you had headphones in, it'd be really simple and it'd probably be, like you said, just wa- just like watching kind of like a stop animation movie almost. Yeah, and you know what? You know what would be... Or you know what's the most appealing piece to me is that comics are a pretty solitary experience. You're sitting there, you're reading... Um, and of course other people can look over your shoulder and read along with you, but Blake, like you and I could sit down and watch some of these dubs and, and experience the comic together and kind of react in the same way that we would react to watching a movie or something along the same lines. And man, some of them are really good. So I, I just wanted to share with our listeners kind of how, uh, how I nerded out about this over the weekend. That's pretty epic, man. That is definitely an epic nerd out. So, Nick, before we get on too far, I do have an opinion question for you this week. Oh, do you, boy. Do we have time? Yeah, we got time. Okay. So, have you ever been... Or, I don't know. I'm, this is, like, a, a common problem that I experience, right? So, I'll sign up for, like, uh, like a website's login, like an email list or something like that, and forget later on, like, what my password was or if I had ever signed up to use this specific, uh, specific service of any kind. I've had that so problem you, before. Yeah. So typically what happens or the pattern I've seen recently and especially in social media, but across a lot of different services is when you go to log into a page, you'll typically find yourself on, on either a sign up page with a lot with kind of like if you have this information or if you already have a login, click here. Um, but typically I find myself on a sign up page. I'll enter in my email, not realizing that it is a sign up, not a login page, and then have to go through that extra step of, you know, entering my password in again, or sometimes even having to enter both my email address and password again. Yeah. And I was wondering from your perspective, is that as annoying as it is to me, I guess? Cause I feel like I've gotten overly frustrated in the past few weeks with that. Because it just it adds an extra step that I don't really necessarily need to go through. You know, Dropbox was a really bad offender of this for a very long time. Um, it looks like they're uh, they've gotten better about it. I just went to their um, to to their uh, website, but um, yeah, I I completely have had that experience, Blake. And I would say that I I, I see it less and less now. I saw it a lot more a while ago. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you in that. It's annoying for us as people who have already signed up. But think about it from their perspective. They're trying to get conversion rates, right, out of people who haven't before. So the more the more easy they the easier they make information available to the users, the more likely the users can put in information and um, they get it. Now, what you can do uh, or, or or the optimal solution would be some sort of hybrid, right, where you have some sort of log in and sign up in the same thing, right? Where if you um, if you put in uh, an email or a username and it, it detects that that username is not taken or that email is not currently in use, it'll set you, route you through a couple extra steps. Um, but if, you know, you, you do sign in, then uh, you can just go go to the next step. I don't know. That's, that's kind of my, my thoughts and opinions on it. Yeah, and like I came to the same conclusion. I, I think I probably just thought about this too hard the other day, but it, it was just one of those things that I don't even think, from an archi- like a web backend standpoint, that it would be that hard to implement. That like, okay, if this, this person actually gave me a username and password that exists and is correct, I should be able to just direct them to whatever page I need to go to. You know, giving them some kind of some notification, whether it be on page or through Toast notifications, like, hey, you you already have an account, but whatever, you're still logged in. Uh, so I just I just wanted to see if that was something you had experienced or if I was just you know being a drama queen about running into it too often. Oh, Blake the drama queen. No, no, no. I I totally have experienced that before, and I have I I totally get it, man. I totally get it. All right. Well, I feel a little more validated. <laughs> well, hey, man. I I think we should move on here. But I, I there's there's a couple pieces of news this week. So first off, uh, thank you for Brian. Brian uh, McDonald last week, he actually helped us break down some of the coverage coming out of UXPA. So if you haven't already, go and check out the bonus episode. We break down a lot of interesting things. Uh, my, my favorite piece from that was the diversity um, the, the diversity panel he covered. Uh, but 
But I have I have some news, guys. Uh, next week, I will not be here. That's right. Your host, Nick Rome, will be gone. But fear not, fear not. We are going to be in good hands. Mr. Blake Arnsdorf is going to be holding down the fort with special guest Elise Hallett next week. So I will not be here, but they will be here holding down the fort to bring you all the Human Factors news. Um, I'm going on vacation, and I will have much to report about my trip to the Grand Canyon and Arizona, uh, Sedona area. So uh, I probably shouldn't have said that, but that's okay. I doubt we have any stalkers that listen to this show. Okay, so... One more thing. Uh, We do have that T-shirt contest going on between uh, now and May 31st. Please leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice. Just send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com with a screenshot. uh, And uh, let us know if if you want a male or female shirt and what size. And we'll pick our winners on the 31st and get in contact with you. So do that. Um, Turns out, Blake, check this out. One of our listeners, uh, good old Logan, he was actually on on our human... Factors and Ergonomic Society bonus episode back in 2017. Uh, he did the Toyota tour. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because didn't you go to... You actually went to that HFES and you guys recorded that uh, over in... I can't remember where it was. But yeah, I remember seeing some of the pictures and talking to you guys one of those nights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Logan is going to be back. He's actually going to AHFE in uh, Orlando. So we will have some coverage from AHFE for you. Uh, Still working out the details on that, but that's exciting. We also got HFES in Philly this year. Um, Looks like uh, we, we will have a presence there. That's all I'm willing to say at this time. <laughs> we will have a presence there. Blake knows. but uh, And then we have HFES Australia 2018, and that's coming to Perth in Australia from November 26th through 28th, and we'll have coverage there too. If you know of any other conferences uh, that you want us to try to get some coverage on, let us know. We're happy to add them to the queue and, and uh, try to do that no human factors practitioner slash designer slash UX person left behind. We're, we're just trying to get as much information from these conferences out and and spread it around. So, uh, you know, we're happy to do that. All right, Blake, you know what time it is? It's time for the news. Yeah, that's time. It's time for the news. This is part of the show where we break down human factors news. This is where we talk everything related to the field of human factors. This could be anything from uh, whatever it is, virtual reality, automation, design, transportation, you name it, as long as it relates to the field of human factors. It is fair game. Blake, what do we got up first this week? All right, so first this week, we humans think we're pretty clever with all of our different ways of communicating with each other. I mean, we vocalize, we have expressive faces, and we even throw gestures at each other to convey meaning. But it seems like plenty of modes of communication for one set of species, but we're actually missing out on a few that are more routine for other animals, including texture. So animals can actually express emotional states through skin changes, like when cats cause their head to stand up, or when a blowfish inflates itself to get all, ex- get all pokey and whatnot. So we can make te- we we can't make these textural expressions like these, but we can often do a reasonable job of, of interpreting what they do when we see them. Such as like anything with spikes growing out of it, we're likely not to want to touch it or understand that it does not want to be touched. But researchers at Cornell University are actually working on a new robot that implements this concept concept of textural communication, which really hasn't been explored in robotics that much at all. So the robot actually uses a mnemonically powered elastomer skin, which can be dynamically textured with either goosebumps or spikes to help it communicate what it's trying to convey to a human. So Nick, this is like a super different way of trying to foster interactions with between like a human and a robot. Because for for everybody at home or those who may not have seen the, some of the images from this actual story, it's basically a small robot head that's in this what looks like little elastic kind of pouch that you put your hands on and it it gives you some tactile feedback or some textural feedback as they're calling it through either like a goosebump sensation or tactile spiky sensations not nothing to hurt anybody but basically what it's trying to do is convey meaning from that robot's face plus what you're experiencing tactily now this is kind of an interesting mode of interaction between humans and robots nick do you have any kind of like big weigh-ins on this one yeah so this is definitely um well yeah, we got a, we got some human robot interaction stuff here, right? Why is this in Human Factors Cast? Well, because the way that we interact with robots going forward is going to be largely determined by sort of the feedback that we get from these machines, and um, it's it's almost I don't know. So uh, I admittedly didn't read into the study as much as I could have, but the video at least is showing like uh, these varying emotions with 
sort of an animated face, but also in addition to that, you have the uh, the the texture on the side panels uh, fluctuating as well. So, for example, you have sad where where the uh, the robot head is looking down and to the left, and it has a tear coming out of one eye and water's welling up in the eyes, and it also has the spikes coming out of the sides. Right, like I don't want to be touched. Um, so. I don't know if if the emotion conveyed in the um, in the actual visuals is all is kind of confounding some of this, but I do find it absolutely fascinating that there is sort of this this untapped potential with textural uh, interfaces or displays as well for robots. I mean. This, this does have a lot of implications, right? So it, this is just another way for the system to give you feedback about what it's doing. In this context, it's a robot, but I can very well see this as being some sort of uh, system status, right? If perhaps a... Uh, 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 perhaps insulation on piping is is dangerous for humans to touch. Well, then maybe maybe it does the spikes and indicates like, don't touch this right now. Whereas if the pipes were to cool down, the uh, the surface would become flat or something. I, I I can think of other applications, but that's the first thing that came to my mind was not the robot actual side of things. Yeah, the uh, it's it's kind of interesting. So you're definitely right. The social expressive face is a little bit of an extra cue for us to tell what's going on. And as it kind of mentioned, sort of towards the end of the article this was kind of the first step of right can we really show people show that people are able to understand the emotional outputs with the combination of both this change in face plus change in kind of texture so it's more of like a learned behavior type of thing over time like spikes mean it's upset or like goosebumps meaning it's sad those are just examples not explicitly used uh, but I think the net they've definitely mentioned at the end that the next steps is to take it okay what if we take the face away or if we do use like an alternate expression or trying to kind of like trick people can they only interpret what's going on from an expression point of view from kind of the tactile feedback uh and really when i when i read this story out i was kind of confused kind of like you are here like what's what's really the value what's the benefit here of like having both and and i get that definitely being able to interact with a robot in a more tactile fashion it's it's another way we can learn to communicate and understand what what the robot is doing and have it also kind of like have some kind of communication with us back and forth but it wasn't until i read one of our later stories that we'll talk a little bit about later from xbox about accessibility that i thought like okay well maybe this is a way that people with different separate sensory losses could interact with robots right so if you're if you're blind potentially interacting with a robot that's in your house through some sort of like tactile simulation will help you understand maybe what it's trying to do or what it's looking for that kind of stuff i'm not sure if that's like the best concrete example but i thought this might be a really good avenue for kind of the accessibility route of things yeah so they they do bring up a, a couple other applications here in, in one of the later sections of this article where uh, they bring up the military applications where silent and invisible modes of communication is necessary between humans and robots. And, uh, you know, visibility may be blocked due to some environmental conditions uh, in which, you know, this could be a method of communication between the robot and the human. Um, alternatively, I mean, we talked about like putting a fluffy tail on a robot a long time ago on the show. And, uh, you know, potentially being an emotional support robot uh, with with that kind of feedback could be another potential application of this or just just uh, emotional communication channel for robots uh, for individuals with visual impairments where they can't see they can't get that visual feedback. And so they get this haptic feedback that kind of cues them in as to what the robot is feeling, quote unquote. Yeah, so I think it. I think the it's interesting to see another kind of tangentially taken thing from, I guess, the animal world. In this case, like they give the example of the cat with the hair crawling on its back versus like the the pokiness of a like an inflatable or a uh, what is it called? A f- anyway, a fish that inflates itself. So it's it's kind of cool that we keep like drawing on these different animal modes of communication in order to help us you know, figure out ways that we can interact with different different robots that we're building. Yeah, what is that term for uh, design inspired by uh, by nature? Uh, I'm not actually sure. I know there's like the personification yeah, of, of animals, right? It's like anthropomorphizing 
but I'm not sure that that's oh. the that's the correct term for design. It's biomimicry. That's what it is. There we are. Yep, yep. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, Blake. This next one. Are you ready for this? <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for this. So just to warn everybody, I have not heard anything really about this besides some weird office banter about what's going on. But should I just read the story we get into it? Let's do it. All right. So some of you may remember back in February 2015, a viral internet image of a dress took the world by storm. Now there's a new illusion. This time it's for your ears. It's an illusion that speaks to each of us in different ways that they're calling the Yanni Laurel illusion. So what's really going on with this illusion? Well, according to researchers, it's clearly an ambiguity illusion, which has nothing to do nothing new to auditory science. So in this case, ambiguous auditory percepts have been known for some some amount of time, definitely studied and researched for a long while. And usually what happens is you have an ambiguous noise that's introduced, and everyone with an earshot of that sound bite can hear it in the same way. They know that something's wrong. And scientists have already been begun to dissect the Yanni Laurel effect, with researchers from the University of Arizona reporting that the auditory analysis they've done on the sound clip reveals that there's clear points that are distinctly ambiguous ambiguous from a physical standpoint which could explain the effect so in basically the physical basis for the ambiguity may not be the most scientifically interesting but it may be why we're all hearing it completely differently so nick what are we going to listen to the clip on the show and kind of like go back and forth about how we're hearing it see if it's dichotomous yes we are so uh as you alluded to earlier um office banter right so so this illusion came up uh, like right after last week's show, I would say. Um, looks like May 14th. What was that? That was a... Uh, oh, geez, calendar load. That was Monday's show. So, yeah. So we just missed this one. But this one is interesting for a variety of reasons. So uh, there is... Uh, like he said, this is an auditory illusion. And this was actually coming from a CAPTCHA, which... In, in user experience, right, you want to provide something that's easy for a human to interpret, but hard, difficult for artificial intelligence to interpret. And so that's why sort of this whole thing came about was because this was an auditory captcha for, um, oh, I forget what it is, but, but the options were Yanny or Laurel. Now, Blake and I have not heard this clip. I've heard like little bits of it. But every time I heard it, I turned it down because I knew we were going to talk about it on the show. So Blake and I have are, are completely virgin ears to this thing. We have not heard this at all. So you're going to be hearing our reactions for the first time on this show. Um, and I'm going to play it. I'm going to play it a couple times. So, so Blake, here, I'm going to play it three times. Don't tell me what you hear yet. Uh, but, but after the third time... We'll, we'll kind of talk about it. Okay, here we go. So here's, here's the first time. I'm making sure the volume's up here. All right, so here we go. Laurel. 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 Okay. Laurel. All right, so it's, it, it's on a loop. So what did you hear there, Blake? <laughs> this is really, this is going to be funny. All right, so I hear Laurel. What okay. you hear? I also hear Laurel, but the first time I heard Yanny. Um, and I, here, I'm going to play it again. I'm going to play it again. Laurel. 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 Yeah, the first time, it's like the first time it plays, after I reset, I hear Yanny, but then I hear it go clearly to Laurel. Oh, really? See, I don't hear any kind of difference at all across the two, or across all the times it plays. I always hear Laurel. That's interesting. I, I can, so I, yeah, I can hear it both ways. Laurel. Laurel. Yeah, okay. So so apparently what's going on with this illusion is that there's some overtones uh, which are which are in a higher pitch, and that that distortion sounds like Yanny, right? And it, it's, uh, it, people speculate, or researchers speculate, or, or some people, I don't know, this, this thing is like in the popular zeitgeist right now. Some people think that this is, be uh, that young people have an easier time hearing Yanny because those overtones are higher pitched. And as we know, younger folks can hear sort of this, uh, the higher ranges, right? Because the, the, uh, the hairs in their cochlea have not broken off yet. So, <laughs> so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If they're, if that's what the, 
what kind of the speculation is, especially if Yanni is being attributed to being, you know, at a higher pitch for when people are hearing it, that would make a lot of sense. Cause I, I don't know about you, but I've definitely have lost a lot of like sensations and sounds in my hearing over the years. I actually think it was you that like pointed out to me that every time you hear kind of that very high pitched noise for a moment, it's, that's the last time you're going to hear that noise. Cause I, there goes one of your, you know, hairs in your cochlea. Uh, so, so, but still I, I even really, this doesn't really mean it's not true, but I definitely really tried after you said that you could hear Yanny in there and I couldn't even make myself hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because as soon as I try to make myself hear it, I can't, I'm going to play it a couple more times. I, I just Laurel Laurel Laurel. Yeah. It's like now Laurel. I, now I can't hear Yanny at all. <laughs> I don't know. It's right on the cusp for me. So I, I can't, I can't. Um, well, I thought it was cool that there were like the, researchers from arizona at least are really attributing this to a difference in how people perceive sound based on its physical qualities so there's just fi- there's some physical ambiguity in the sound clip itself that that'll that i guess they're postulating lets you let some people hear it one way p- potentially laurel versus like hearing it another way yanny so that's that's kind of a cool concept or a cool auditory research idea that i really had never thought of or heard of I would get a phone call right as we're podcasting. All right. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, uh, apparently, we have these different attention spans, and we pay attention to different frequencies when listening to speech, right? So, um, the lowest of uh, the the uh, frequencies is essential to things like L's and R's, uh, which are the consonants that make up Laurel, right? But then there's Yanny, Right, the second frequency, um, and that one is where you get sort of the uh, the the. What am I trying to say here? I, I, the it has the same pattern as the L R L and Laurel, so it it kind of the overtones kind of mask it. I'm not describing this very well, but look up some of the science on this because it is. Uh, it's pretty interesting to see, especially some of these auditory um, these auditory breakdowns where you can actually see the polytones as this thing goes across, and you can clearly see that there are almost two distinct words here in this, um, or, or really, it's like the the overtones are just layered on top of each other, and then the bass is Laurel. So, so this clip is actually saying Laurel, but because of the overtones, it sounds like Yanny. Wow. Okay. That's, that's super, that's crazy how sound works like that. Right. And especially for different modes of communication. And I guess uh, the, one of the bigger impacts here is like using, I guess, uh, auditory cues for, cause this was originally like a recapture sound, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was a uh, auditory captcha. Yeah. So, I mean, th- what happens then, I guess, if, if people always have to use those, right? Like in the case of blindness or not being able to, you know, get your password right and you need to reset it. Or if some system asks you these questions, because I mean, if you have somebody potentially maybe that's younger hearing one thing versus older hearing something completely different, that could be really problematic. So I sure. wonder what kind of ways around this that the companies go through for this kind of problem. Well, like with any CAPTCHA, you can just re, re- uh, what is the re refresh it and it'll give you a new one so that's the way around it but someone found this and took the internet by storm and uh now we get the whole yanny laurel uh debate laurel it's pretty great all right well why don't we move on to our next one because you alluded to this earlier i think this one's a really cool one so let's let's go ahead and talk about it yeah, this will be interesting to go back and forth with you about. So, Microsoft is definitely known for championing inclusion and accessibility causes, bringing gaming and other Microsoft services to those who have various types of accessibility needs. And in a recent image of an um, unannounced Xbox controller, it also looks like it's being designed around accessibility needs. So, it'll likely get bigger reveals between now and E3 in 2018. And while we don't have many details about how it works exactly, you can see from the image about how how it has grooved impressions at the top, which represent all of the typical Xbox controller functionality. And we can expect to definitely hear more details in the near future, Future, but this is just another example in the long list of commitments that Microsoft and the Xbox team have in making unique experiences easy for people with accessibility needs. So Nick, for you want to just break down and describe for those who 
haven't seen the image or who are just listening to this for the first time tonight, what's going on with this Xbox controller? Sure. So what it looks like to me is two large circular pads that would sort of act as replacements for the joysticks. You have a large D-pad, which is the cross uh, button that controls your character in most most circumstances. And then you also have all these icons across the top, which... um, I think you mentioned kind of uh, has it, it, it could be controls, right? Or touch controls or something. So we're, we're kind of unsure what that does. I don't think there was any follow-up to this to see if there was uh, any official announcement. I'm looking now. Um, but I, I do think this is, I, and it's difficult to even estimate the size here too, like whether or not this is, uh, this, this almost to me looks like one of those uh, Dance Dance Revolutions pads, where it's it's actually kind of bigger, but I'm not sure. Um, but this is really cool because there's videos of people, uh, disabled people, or uh, people who cannot use their hands to play video games online. There's there's literally a YouTube streamer that is uh, has cerebral palsy and he has to play with his face and. Um, you know, something like this could make that easier. Yeah, I mean, it definitely could, Nick. The The one thing that I'm a little confused about, it, it's tough because we don't know if this is just like a mock-up product image that got tossed out there or if this thing's actually going to be made or what really is going on. Because some of the design choices do, I think, make it a little more difficult to use. And it would depend on, again, sizing and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, from a typical, typical controller, it's going to be ability the ability to hold it in your hand, especially since it's got a D-pad on it on this left side. I mean, it looks like it's going to have to be in some way handheld. Um, and just for for listeners, like at the very top of this controller, like think of a, a rectangular controller, almost like the, the OG Nintendo system, where it's got a D-pad on the left-hand side. Like Nick said, these two very big, taking up the majority of the, I would say almost like 80% of the controller space are these big circular pads uh, that sit ne- sit right next to each other. And then on the very top, there's these what look like from the image we have very small icons. And I can tell like one of them is definitely power. So maybe turning out turning on and off the Xbox. There's an ability to to plug in some kind of USB, either I don't know USB for power output or for charging, whatever it is. But then there's a host of other options at the top, and I'm not really sure just from the image what they are or how you interact with them. Because I'm assuming, like Nick said, they could be touch buttons, but it almost looks to me like they might be a little too close together for that. So maybe there's buttons on the front side of this controller. I'm not really sure. But in terms of like how different this is from a typical Xbox controller from uh, from what you would use like today versus what this looks like, the only thing that I see missing, and I'm wondering how this design plays out is it's completely missing all of the like control buttons so you're missing your i think god i'm gonna mess this up i'm sure but you're you're like a b and x and y buttons those might be at the top though those might be some of those those buttons at the top and so i'm reading it could be but it's it's definitely not clear from the icons they've chosen so i'm reading another article by polygon and they're kind of breaking it down here but it looks like what this is meant to do is kind of be sort of this um transformer like uh plug and play kit where you basically plug in the things that would help you right so this is meant as like a base to the accessibility um thing and and you'd basically plug in different bits and pieces uh polygon's got a really great article on this um but like so you basically plug in buttons that would work for you at the top of this thing and um, here, Blake, I'm going to post this in the show notes so you can actually see it. I want you to scroll down about halfway through, and we'll post this in our Slack as well. Um, here, I just posted that in the show notes for you. So about halfway down the page, you'll see that that these inputs on the top, they are actually uh, different sort of like uh, like if you have a keyboard, you can plug in a pedal. So you can play with the pedal on your keyboard, and I'm talking like... Um, like musical keyboard. Now this allows you to uh, potentially put different but- buttons in here, so you can use a pedal for your foot, or um, you know a smaller button that you can lean up against, or something to help you play. Uh, and it even has like a Wiimote 
nunchuck controller up here as well. Uh, it looks like it's got some mounting on the back. Um, when we posted this story, just so you all know, we didn't have as much details as we do now. Um, but this Polygon story kind of really breaks down a lot of this uh, and is actually uh, quite useful. So, so there's a lot here to break down, and I'm wondering if you have any additional thoughts after seeing some of the stuff from this Polygon article, Blake. It's interesting because some of these parts, like I've definitely never seen before. So you're right; these are obviously like modular pieces that are going to be. It, I would take it. I'm going to take a guess and say they're specifically for you know accessibility needs. And I, it's it's pretty interesting that we're seeing like a a nunchuck being able or a nunchuck from like a Nintendo Wii being able to be plugged in and used as well. Uh, but I, you know, I'm trying to load up this video and walk through some of it. Okay, I see now. I see some of the ideas between some of the connective tools that they supply. So they they actually sell all of these different con assistive connective switches. And actually, if you look at it, it's basically you're you're building a giant controller. Oh, that is that is so awesome. Now I now I kind of understand it a little bit bigger. So all it clicks. All of these all of these like really big kind of buttons or inputs allow you to create a huge kind of controller system. So now you you can use like the nunchuck for more of a. Uh, trying to think like directional movement but then you have these really really big button sets that allow you to like be able to smash them easily that's pretty cool yeah so i'm posting this right now in our slack channel so if you want to see the video that blake and i are talking about or any of these additional peripherals that attach to this controller um and even how it how it helps some um people who need additional accessibility options this is this is a wonderful video to check out so uh go check it out i'm posting it uh on the original 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 that's that's uh that's name for original article in the slack here <laughs> okay blake so before we move on I just want to thank all of our friends over at TechCrunch, Gizmodal, IEEE, Windows Central, and Scientific American for all of our stories this week. We had a lot of them. So if you want to follow along, you can follow all over social media. Or, like I said, join us in our Slack for links to the original articles and follow-up articles like I just did. Okay, Blake, what do we got up next? This one's fun. Oh, yes, this is pretty cool. So last week, the Boring Company executives, a little man named Elon Musk and Stephen Davis, offered more details about their plans to revolutionize L.A. urban transit, introducing the Loop, which would eventually be composed of all-electric pods that transport up to 16 passengers at a time. So the team theorizes that the Loop could take Los Angeles residents from downtown L.A. to any terminal at the LAX airport within eight minutes for about a dollar. Yep. That was a dollar. So much of the focus of the presentation was to assure the public that the Boring Company's efforts would not be dis to be disrupted to the public or heavily stress the city's existing highway systems. While the company has been best known for its hat and flamethrower sales, it is daunt it's a daunting challenge. Its most daunting challenge is courting public opinion for its plans to upgrade LA's tra transportation infrastructure. Now that's that's kind of an interesting take on what's what kind of the problematic aspects of this are like really trying to get people as a whole on board because I'm I would assume and I've only been in very little LA traffic in my time out in California but the times that I have I would have much rather ridden something like the Boring Company's loop to the airport or to downtown LA versus just sitting in traffic for hours on end. Yeah, I mm, Okay. So I'm skeptical to say the least <laughs> uh i okay i let's Nick, break this. always the elon skeptic so what are you skeptical about i am like look okay so this is obviously a radical change in public transportation right and he's doing the right thing with sort of offering this at at cost to him to get people on board right so i just i this i i, I look look here this this i it's very easy to get caught up and enamored with sort of the technology being promised here, right? Um, and it can especially be sort of this pipe dream for anyone like me who sits in an hour and a half traffic every day. Now, the promise of going from downtown LA to LAX in eight minutes is wow. That is really wow. Um, but I will say, I just... I. 
we'll believe it when I see it. Maybe you and I should try to get access to this thing and see if we can do like a like a eight minute podcast on this thing while we are transfer <laughs> while we are traveling from uh, downtown LA to LAX and back and and uh, get our sort of take on it because <laughs> this would be awesome to do. I just this is going to require a lot of buy in from the public before this type of thing becomes commonplace. Yeah, and I think so. I'm going to agree with you on a lot of this, Nick, which is unlike me, especially since we're talking about Elon Musk. Your boy. Um, yeah, I know. But I mean, here, here's kind of why, right? So this is a lot to take on, and I think they're going at it from the right angle from a PR perspective and getting it socialized in the community. Because I mean, the more that we're talking about this and that people are able to like either ask questions or hear them out and about on it or hear more about it, it's it's going to make it you know be out there more in people's minds and let them kind of decide does does this make sense or not the thing i honestly worry about is the the idea of the boring company and nick you can feel free to hop in if i make some mistakes here uh but at the end of the day it's it's putting an underground infrastructure in la which i mean that that's a daunting task in and of itself because we're not just talking about you know digging some holes we're talking about digging digging and manufacturing parts for specific pieces that are going to allow like a, a giant electronic pod system to work underground and then they've got to test it they've also got to deal with okay the existing infrastructure of pipes and whatnot that sit under cities also just in case you haven't heard in in california sometimes we get earthquakes every now and again how are they going to test for that prepare for that kind of stuff there's a lot that goes into it and then to put public perception on top of that i mean it's really awesome that you could get from downtown LA to LAX in eight minutes for a dollar. But it is with all these big promises of taking away a lot of traffic stress, is that really where the most stress of traffic is for LA at all times during the day? I don't know if that's true. I feel like a lot of it, more of it has to do with commuter traffic, either going to LA, leaving LA at certain times of the day. Um, now, don't get me wrong, being able to get to LA and get to the airport quickly, that has massive benefit and may be a great first proof of concept uh, but I, i'm gonna have to agree with you until i see like these electric pods in an actual loop that are being tested going from lax to from la to lax i i, I don't really know how how well i'm gonna believe that it's coming or not and and i also honestly don't know any better way that they could go about courting the public because if whether whether they kind of included this or not or this is said in this any of the stories about this i mean Musk is having to deal with kind of some of the blowback that comes from the autonomous vehicle world of Tesla and stuff like that that's occurred in the past six months. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough challenge, but I, I don't know. I think they're going at it the right way, but I do agree with you. Yeah, I you know, I didn't have time to sit down and watch this whole uh, information session that they did. I might, I might pull the audio and put that in our Patreon uh, feed. Um, but yeah, I think... Look, the you you hit it spot on the money. The the route from downtown LA to LAX, that's not going to be the most congested route for sure. And there's a lot of problems with maintenance. Um and I think you hit a a, a you kind of skirted around the point here where there's not going to be public buy-in until the government's behind this thing, right? Until this is regulated in some fashion, until this is um, sort of a replacement for the public transportation systems that we have in place now. I don't think there's going to be the the, the mass public buy-in. I think this will be for the... Um, I, I, I have a feeling that this will be tailored more towards the elite, the people who know about this stuff, the the techies, the you know, and, and they will benefit. Um, but... You know, the city of L.A., at least, is is really on board with this idea. At least the mayor is. Um, and we've he's at least, you know, allowed Musk the clearance to operate under the city. Right. So that's a big step in the right direction. Now we just need, you know, sort of these uh, large scale projects to, to take hold and, and test them at this uh, at this larger scale to see how this would happen. And. We need to experience some natural disasters. As bad as that is, we need to see how this type of thing can withstand um, traveling in an area in which there are a lot of earthquakes. So there's a lot of uphill battles. I'm going to pull the audio from this, and I'm going to 
put it up on our Patreon feed for all of our Patreon subscribers. So you can listen to the full boring company, boring company information session there on, on our Patreon feed. Um, okay, Blake, I think we got one more story. Is that right? Oh yeah. We got one more story. This is a kind of a, a social implication one. Yes. Let's do it. All right. So Google's unofficial model has been long for a long time. A simple phrase. Don't be evil. But that's over according to the code of conduct that Google distributes to its employees every six months. So the phrase was removed sometime in late April or early May. Don't be evil has been a part of the company's corporate codes, corporate code of conduct since about 2000. And the updated versions of version of Google's code of conduct still retains one reference to the company's unofficial model. The final line of the document is still, and remember, don't be evil. If you see something that you think isn't right, don't be afraid to speak up. So, Nick, we've got actually two versions from this article that talk about, like, that give us blurbs from the actual code of conduct. One with the with the phrase, don't be evil, generally stating, like, do, tech, do things for good and keep people in mind. And then the other, just not including the phrase at all. And I, I, I'm not sure what the what the banter around this is, like, from the Internet's point of view, what's been going on. But I'd love to get your take on this story. Yeah, so my big sort of takeaway from this is, uh, you know, as small as it is, right, this is this is a company policy, and it might just be that this is common sense, but taking it out of your mandate, like, look, this is not directly a human factor story, but it also is, because honestly, Google is designing a lot of services that sort of interface with everyday people. And by taking out this clause, there's not, it's just like a passive cultural uh, or corporate culture. You know what I mean? That without this, oh, yeah. without this clause, it's not going to be explicitly stated. And up until this point, it was explicitly stated. And you should always, 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 always as a UX guy or girl or as a human factors practitioner, always try to keep the best interest. You are the advocate for the user. Keep the user's best interest in mind. And, uh, you know, don't be evil kind of goes, <laughs> goes along with that. So I, I mean, I'm not accusing the people, the fine folks at Google of being evil or, or secretly moving towards that model, but it certainly is not a good optics to, to kind of remove that clause from such a powerful company, uh, with a lot of reach with their products. Yeah. Why? <laughs> why what? Why is it not good? Why optics? why is it not good to remove that from the code of conduct? It's not good because it's it's bad optics. It's bad optics and if it pervades the company, then then you're going to have people who, you know, like especially new folks that work there, they won't know that was ever a clause. And like I said, it pervades the culture. So if if it's not in the company's culture to do no evil, then it's going to come down to the people who are making the decisions that affect both you and I and all of our listeners and everyone who uses a Google product. That's kind of my point here. Yeah. And I mean, it generally makes sense. It's just the, the problem I'm having here is I don't know where this story is kind of stemming from or who really put it out that the code of conduct changed and who was noticing that this don't be evil phrase is not in there. Cause technically according to the new document, it still is in there. It's just not in the same place as it used to be. Um, and I can see how it could be misconstrued too, that they've, they've taken out this idea of focusing on don't be evil, uh, and now putting it very much in the hands of whoever's getting this, this memo or document for the first time to read it through and then understand that if you see something wrong in the company, see something quote-unquote evil, then it's really up to you to do something about it and speak up, which in a company like Google, I would only imagine, because I've had no experience with them or any of their employees, it could be daunting speaking up if you saw something bad that was going on. And I, I can see how people could mis- misconstrue that if this is being taken out of the code of conduct, that it's it's leaving it up to employees, especially new employees, to kind of be the ones that are spotting evil. Uh, but I'm just not sure that it really takes away from how Google builds products. Uh, I think it just phrases it differently than it was in the code of conduct. All right, that's fair. All I wanted to do was really just just bring up don't be evil and keep it kind of in your collective consciousness as you go through and and design the products that you are making on a daily basis. 
that's all I wanted to say with that one. All right. Uh, well, Blake, do you have any other closing thoughts on the news stories this week? No, that's some intense ones this week for yeah, sure. Yeah, we but did. We have good a picks. lot of them. It came from. It came from. All right, it's time for It Came From Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics the community is talking about. Any subreddit's fair game, as long as it relates to the field of human factors and encourages discussion among the community. Okay, Blake, I, I got to say something. We're not doing It Came From Reddit next week because I'm not going to be here. And I have to be on the show in some capacity. You know this, right? Yes. <laughs> so we're going to try to ha- line up an interview for next week uh, from one of the fine folks that Woodrow talked to at uh, Kai. And I was there for that interview. And, and hopefully we'll have that for you next week in place of it came from Reddit. But this week, what do we want to talk about? One, two, or uh, three? Well, Nick, it looks like number one, neither one of us have experience in these two things, unless you do. Nope. Yeah. So one's out. Uh, do you want do you want to? You know, try and softball field a bachelor's thesis topic. Oh, all right, all right. Yeah, we can we can go for that one. Softball. Um, okay, so this one uh, is from the user experience subreddit, and it's titled "Having a hard time coming up with a bachelor thesis." Now, this is from Reddit model. Ooh, so UI UX has always been a very interesting topic for me personally. I have quite a bit of experience in web design and some experience in UI design. I did find a professor that would like to supervise my thesis, but I have yet to come up with a good topic. Originally, I had planned to write something about how to design user-friendly and effective e-learning platform, but my professor wasn't satisfied with my proposal. He thought it was way too broad. I would need to specify the learning platform for what it is, as well as the group that it is aimed at. He suggested that I might take an existing e-learning platform and analyze it, which I am currently not too excited about. I did some further research and came across an article that mentioned the problem of designing interfaces and websites for elderly people, especially for elderly people with dementia, and thought it could be exciting. The article said that this is an an almost untouched topic that needs to get addressed ASAP or it will become a problem in the future with growing aging population and dementia becoming an epidemic. Does this sound like a topic for a bachelor thesis? I would probably have to specify the application as well, websites or smartphone apps, etc. I am not set on the dimension dementia thing yet, though. So far, I think writing the actual paper will be less of a problem than coming up with a topic. So, Blake, uh, I'm going to go ahead and turn this one over to you. What do you think about focusing on dementia uh, and designing for dementia as it becomes an epidemic? That's an interesting topic, and I never would have come across it, and it Kudos to you for doing a thesis in a in your bachelor years. That's awesome. Uh, honestly, it just sounds like the only problem with your first original idea was narrowing down to like more specific ideas. So using finding an e e-pla- learning platform to really focus on, and versus like kind of targeting what demographic you'd be using. So I don't know something something like the onboarding of freshmen or something for their first experience with a program like Blackboard or Canvas. Uh, but is, in terms of you coming up with a thesis idea that's more geared towards a specific population like the elderly or like you mentioned dementia that would be a really interesting topic and if it's not been touched a whole bunch by the literature it might make it a little more difficult so again you're really going to have to focus down on what are you trying to get out of this in terms of outcomes like what what do you want to know or understand that's that's the one of the things i kind of see missing here is what what are you researching what are your questions do you have about e-learning platforms or what aspects of websites do you have questions about that could ultimately help serve elderly people more um if you have a professor that's willing to supervise your thesis and again i have a little less experience here with this specific type of thesis because i did not do one of my bachelor years so i don't know if there's a different process but i would really try and spitball off of them like okay i have all these ideas what really makes the most sense and if if i need to get more granular be prepared to do so because it it does sound like when you talk to your thesis advisor or supervisor whatever it may be with your first original idea that they they tried to give you some some navi some navigating tips but you kind of jumped ship to another another topic so i I don't know i would really focus on what you really want to know from from like a ui designer ux perspective when it comes to doing a thesis what questions you want answered in the field and if it's something 
if dementia and understanding how people use websites and how you can kind of facilitate their ability to use them with dementia, really start digging into what you could be testing for, like small, small aspects of it. Like how can I make it more efficient for people with dementia to use a specific website, things like that. Um, as far as the act, <laughs> coming up with the idea is definitely always the hard part. The paper is not too bad. It's, it's pretty much just formatting and doing the experiment from there, if that's what you have to do. Yeah, so I would augment your recommendations, Blake, with listen to Human Factors Cast. We oftentimes come up with a lot of interesting topics that uh, the field is currently looking into. And I will say, you know, there's sort of, are you interested in dementia? Because if not, then this project is going to be really boring for you. And this is your thesis. This is something that you want to own. So uh, I, I would almost focus on the micro aspect of it if, if your professor allows you to, right? Like, are you able to focus on what's the most effective way to uh, design a search bar? What's the most effective way to design uh, a loading bar? I don't know. There's a bunch of different UI elements that you can kind of pick and choose what a, uh, a good project is. I, I tend to find if you want small, that could, that's the smallest unit of measurement that you can possibly do. Um, now, you can still be pretty targeted, obviously, um, but it all comes down to whether or not this is a population in which you are interested in. Uh, do you feel like you will get fulfillment out of this project? And if not, look for another population, look for another problem that you can speak to. Uh, and I know it's hard. It's hard when you are in a bachelor's program to come up with these research ideas because you lack sort of the advanced education that sometimes gives you the context for these different ways of, of thinking about problems and also what, you know, the advanced courses kind of teach you what kind of problems are out there, right? So I, I don't know. It's, I, I echo your statements, Blake, but I also think that maybe um, looking into either uh, finer resolution solutions or uh, or a different user population could open up more doors. Yeah, that's definitely a way to go. And again, if you have somebody that's supervising you, I would just like tend to pull on them for this as well because they they will probably like nick is telling you go to like a, a much more micro idea versus like something so broad as an entire platform or an entire um website so that's a great idea nick all right well blake you know what time it is of the show you, you know what it is it's that time it's that time that's it for today everyone let us know what you guys think of the stories this week did you like them did you hate them let us know if you guys have any suggestions for topics for new stories that you want us to cover uh, you can follow us all over social media or join the discussion on our Slack. Head on over to the Human Factors Cast LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at H Factors Podcast. Check us out on SoundCloud. Leave us a comment over there. We love hearing from you. Or you can send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com. If you're feeling like you want to do things the old-fashioned way, you can do that too. Leave us a voicemail at 901-646-1432. That's 901-646-1HFC. You can also support us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash humanfactorscast. We're always putting up goodies over there like Human Factors Cast Infinite and bonus audio content like from the Boring Company's information session. So, uh, you know, if you can support us financially, we give back to you. If you can't, that's okay. Be sure to like, subscribe, review us on whatever your favorite podcast directory is, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, you name it. And just to remind you, we are running a contest right now between now and May 31st. Leave us a review on that podcast medium of choice. Send us an email with a screenshot of your review and let us know if you want a male or female shirt and what size. And we'll let you know if you won by May 31st. And of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Armstrong for hanging out with us today on the show and hanging out with me on a Monday night and talking about stuff and human factors and stuff. <laughs> Just drawing it out. Blake's waiting for the drop. Where? <laughs> Where can our listeners find you if they want to talk about how long I drew, drew this out? If you guys want to talk about how long Nick drew out that outro and more, you can always reach me at Don't Panic UX across social media. Excellent. As for me, I have been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Nick underscore Rome. Until next time, everyone. It depends. Depends.
Laurel. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.